We've just stepped away from the Investec Women in Leadership event. This year, we're centered on the courage to change. So what are we as women doing to challenge the patriarchal mindset that dominates both politics and business alike? I'm joined now by two women who are champions of the power in diversity cause and their role models in their respective fields. Fumani Mtembi is a founding member of the Pele Energy Group, Africa's largest 100% black-owned independent power production and development firm. She is also the MD of its research and development arm, Knowledge Pele. And then we have Teresa Oakley-Smith, who is the founder and MD of Diversity, a change management consultancy firm. She has an MA in education psychology and has worked as an academic at WITS for many years before starting her own business. Thank you both so much for joining me. Both of you are founders and MDs of your own successful businesses. Fumani, let's start with you. You started Pillar Energy over eight years ago and you were one of only five black founders and the only woman. Plus, you weren't even close to your 30s. In fact, I believe you were 25. So give us a taste of that founding story. How did you meet the other founders? Were they initially skeptical to start a business with a woman or were they of the opinion that it gave your company an advantage? When we all got together, I think the sort of the best part of the story and the magic of it was that we had a common dream. And that um, was, in a sense, the thing that that enjoined us and made it possible to move beyond, I'd say, very petty things like my gender. Um, Of our five founders, three are cousins, actually. So they'd known each other from birth. the fourth um, member went to university with them, and so he'd known them since they were in their teens, late teens. I was introduced by a friend, actually. So I just um, returned from studying, and they just quit their jobs at the time. And she said, you know, I think you guys have something in common, um, so you should meet up and have lunch and, and see where that goes. And literally, you know, we had a coffee, and it, it was it. You know, we, we made sense to each other. And what we had, which I think a lot of businesses start in a very different way, we had a a dream as opposed to a business plan. And I think when you have a dream, it's much easier to get started. We were able to split, you know, the the equity equally. We we weren't really concerned with the nuts and bolts of the business. It was more about the dream and then the business plan came later. And what was that dream? The dream for us was to transform society through knowledge and power. Um, That is something that we, we had in common. We knew that we wanted to make a difference, leave a legacy, create a new kind of context in which people like ourselves could operate. We wanted, um, I think, to spread what we understand to be the justice dividend and to use our privilege responsibly. And that was enough. And we we, we knew that the nuts and bolts would follow, but it was important that we understood that we could use the the instrument of business to advance um, what is, I think, a much deeper um, cause. And Teresa, your passions lie in breaking down barriers of race, gender, culture, even language. What was it about your experience that awoke your interest in diversity? First of all, at teaching at the University at Wits back in the 1980s, around the time that you were probably born <laughs> for money, it was coming to the realization that, that we as South Africans just really didn't know anything about each other, that we were completely a closed book and that we were working as academics and also as students um, completely in the dark. Um, the stereotypes that we had of one another, you know, black students thought all the white students were Boorah and the white students thought all the black students were terrorists in those days. 
So I was really, because I was running a residence as well as teaching, I was really confronted with having to make this place a place for everybody. And so to do that involved trying to get people to understand each other better. And so it was that experience back in those days that made me decide to leave academia and start a business, try and create a business. And I think... As Fumani said, for me, it was also a dream, a dream of making a contribution, a dream of making a difference at a really fundamental level. I mean, it's not enough for us to just have freedom if we're still all living our separate lives in separate boxes. Fumani, I know your journey as a businesswoman hasn't been without its ups and downs. I mean, at one point, you had to put your own savings in to keep your business afloat. How difficult was it to do that? And how do you know when to say, right, enough's enough. This is a sinking ship and we need to abandon. I definitely don't know how to um, abandon ship. And I think if, if we did, we wouldn't be here today. Um, you know, I always say starting a business is almost like I've never actually sort of physically gambled, but I imagine sitting at a slot machine is like that. And no, don't tell me that because I hate gambling. <laughs> I'm really, I'm, I'm sorry, but it's like that. But I think if you sit there long enough, you'll win, right? I mean, what are the chances that you won't win? And it's just about your, your patience and your ability to just stick it out. So, you know, for us, it, we, we don't come from wealthy families. Um, so our startup capital was the little we had. And, you know, I speak about recognizing privilege because it's in the small things. You know, having a laptop is everything to, you know, running a business today. Um, having Wi-Fi a car, connection. Wi-Fi, right? Um, a card to get to meetings. People don't need to know where you actually work from. We, I mean, our office was a garage. Um, and that's where, you know, we got together and planned and, and um uh, you know, sort of put our thoughts together. But when you go out to the world, it's, it's about appearing a certain way and just, you know, having those those assets, in a sense, um, is what enables the, the, the journey. So, you know, from our perspective, and I think youth, right? My life is also very different today to what it was when I was 25. So it was much easier to, to take that risk. Um, so I'm, I'm cognizant of that as well as a privilege. And I'd say to young people, Go for it. Go for it. You know, like you have a lot less to lose. Exactly. You have nothing to lose. It's embarrassing to to have to ask your parents for petrol money and all of that stuff um, when you're meant to be a lot more accomplished. But they bought into the dream, and you know, I think it's it's starting to pay off because they they see that it you know it, it meant something, and we actually put in the work. But you're making it sound quite run of the mill when in fact it's not. Uh, you know, there's a massive lack of entrepreneurial spirit and thinking within our economy. Um, what is it that you did that gave you this courage to start something new, which was incredibly risky? I agree with you. And in fact, we now run, so part of our business is, is about development. So developing the communities that we operate in. And we, in fact, run a, a training program um, that's called Startup Pack. And the point of it is to teach entrepreneurship as a Startup Pack. Startup Pack, yeah, like a, a self-run Startup Pack. Okay. You know, we say the point is to teach entrepreneurship as a life skill because it's actually about being able to survive, being able to innovate regardless of the context that you're in, that you make a business of it is almost secondary, but it, it really should be a mentality, particularly in a country like our own, um, where jobs are, are hard to come by. So... You know, it's hard for me, obviously, to sort of reflect on myself and why it is that we did it, but it it just became really important to us. I think that's possibly the most important thing that I can say. It's just the the burning desire to want 
something different. Yeah. I mean, Teresa, you've also had to make some huge personal and financial sacrifices to keep diversity alive. You mentioned in the conference that you've had to sell a couple of homes. The thing about being an entrepreneur is it isn't necessarily an upward trajectory. You know, I started off, as I said, using the pension money I had from Vits, which was minuscule. And um, the business has gone through cycles and there have been up times and there have been down times. And like you putting in your savings for money, I, I had to sell a house at one point because even though the business was doing poorly, I still had so much belief in the dream. Um, so I think that's what, that's what happens with entrepreneurs. You just have to make a plan. You have to make a way. And when I left Vitz, I was a single mother with two children. So it was really very risky. But I just felt that there was this need and that I had to help people recognize the need. Um, and the only way I could do that was through um, getting involved in, in business, through the private sector companies, the public sector, communities. And then and how, how long has diversity been going on for now? 23 years. This is wow. our 23rd year. We started in 1993. And have you seen an increase need for your services? It's been very interesting because Initially, it was a hard sell and people began to get the idea. And then after 2010, everyone went into this state of, oh, we don't need this kind of stuff. We're a rainbow nation. I don't even see color. What are you coming here with your diversity stuff for? But recently, you know, in, say 2015, 16, I think people have begun to realize more that actually we're not a rainbow nation. That's a complete myth. Mm. that most South Africans don't have any same status friends and contacts from other races still. The apartheid geography is still pretty much in place. Intact, yeah. And so I think for all sorts of reasons, there is still a need. And I think things like the Employment Equity Act have helped. Um, companies realise that whether they like it or not, they have, ha have to have different kinds of people in their organisation. And to be productive and profitable, those people need to be able to work together. And then more recently, the amendments to the broad-based Black Economic Empowerment Act, I think, have been very helpful. Um, so I think the legislation has been an asset. Teresa brings up Black Economic Empowerment. And Fumani, I know you've got some quite specific views on this and how it was quite, possibly quite a good starting point, but that it, it, it lacks something. Black Economic Empowerment is... I agree from a legislative perspective, a lot has been done to give us all a platform. So, and, and when I say all, I mean all groups that um, were historically subjugated. I think there's a very good platform for us to participate in our economy. What it also does, however, and I, I think this is a natural limitation of the law, is that it, in a sense, defines our role in a very tight way. And unless we can think of ourselves in broader terms, um, the expectation then becomes that we need to conform with this legislation. And so, you know, one of the things that the Triple BE Act, for example, imagines is that you have, in terms of black or female participation, you have owners and you have operators. Right, and you're saying that you're only ever operators. We're saying we want to be both. Mm. When you think of the very types of corporates that we're describing, say for example in the energy sector, those corporates own the entire value chain and they do it because it helps them ultimately to deliver power more efficiently and, and at a better price to the ultimate consumer, but because it makes sense to have that entire stable of services in one entity. What we find, however, is that in the way in which South Africa is constructed, you'll have a lot of black players who own energy assets but do not know how to operate 
a power plant. Similarly, you'll have um, energy companies or, or other, let's say, engineering or construction companies that can contribute to the construction of a power plant, but wouldn't really know what it means to own it, right? And that separation, I think, is, is in fact very disempowering because you can't actually then build competitors that can take on the foreign entities that are currently in the country. So we're locked into this long-term arrangement where we'll be forever dependent because we haven't brought those two identities together. Is that what you're trying to achieve through Knowledge Pele? Exactly. So Knowledge Pele first completes the, that value chain. Um, you know, we have Billy Green Energy and um, Billy Natural Energy. And the, those entities fulfill the, the core of the, the, the energy business, which is to develop, own and operate um, energy assets, right? But we don't don't, energy assets don't exist uh, sort of on Mars. <laughs> you know, they're, they're located in, in communities, um, often peri-urban, rural communities that are geographically and therefore, you know, sort of socioeconomically excluded from the rest of the country. And so what Knowledge Billy seeks to do is, is bridge that gap and ensure that the communities we operate in are transformed as well. And our, our long-term outlook is to have those communities sustain themselves and have a a kind of sort of industrial revolution at the community level that enables them to not depend so much on the power plant for employment or, you know, sort of social investment, um, but to act as, as vibrant, uh, you know, hubs of economic development. That's very interesting because um, I recall sort of in the um, early or the late 1990s, after the business was going, we did some work with the Department of Water Affairs. And the intention was to work with engineers who in those days were all white and male and communities. And the intention was the communities would actually manage the water and especially the women. It was seen as an, a way of empowering women. It never really happened. It didn't get off the ground. I mean, the actual, I think, you know, the, it wasn't properly sustained by the department concerned. I think that was the problem. But our involvement was to was to bring these groups together, so, which was how I got involved. So I'm really relating to what you say. I think as a small as a small business, we're an EME. We're also constrained somewhat by Triple B E E. Um, because um, the, uh, the requirements for enterprise development, for example, I mean one does obviously try that, but as a small company you, you know, your asset base is fairly small and it's difficult to, you know, to actually be, be able to help other enterprises to develop. And I, I think that's, I think the most fundamental part of it is the skills development. I think if organisations really are genuine about triple BEE, most they should invest hugely in developing the skills of their employees and of people who are unemployed because that's also necessary and it's also part of the the amended code and I'd, I'd like to see much more emphasis on that than ownership and management and so on. <laughs> 